Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and welcome to Next Question. On today's summer book tour, a conversation with Juliana Margulies, or as you may know her, Alicia Florick from The Good Wife. Poetry is easy. It's the parent-teacher conferences that are hard. Or maybe you're more of a nurse Carol Hathaway, ER fan. Sometimes I think I should be going out with the patients instead of the doctors. I really, really like Juliana Margulies. She's an actress and producer, and now she's an author. Her memoir is called Sunshine Girl, An Unexpected Life. And I had the pleasure of interviewing her back in May on a virtual stop on her book tour. We talked about her writing process, what the book was first intended to be, that impressive TV career. And we even check in on some of her famous friends. George Clooney, damn her. So enjoy, everybody. Let's start with the, the genesis of this book. I remember interviewing you for my podcast I believe it was in 2018 and we knew each other. We were friendly. We've since become, you know, gotten to know each other better. But I remember hearing a little bit about your childhood and thinking, my God, you need to write a book. (laughs) And you kind of said, you know, I thought about writing a book. So my question is, why now? What was the impetus for you wanting to write this book? And, And then I'd like to ask you a little bit selfishly about your writing process. Sure. The genesis of the book started right after I finished The Good Wife. My very um, last day of The Good Wife, I came home and I write about this in the preface of the book where I uh, felt so sick and I woke up at three in the morning and I had the chicken pox. And I was so sick that I ended up in bed for three weeks. And um, I I think it was my body after 156 episodes, seven years of just spinning plates and go, 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 um, trying to get it all in and do it right. My body just said, that's it. You've let go. And so this book came out um, from me trying to shed Alicia because I was thinking, trying to think like her 
and um, wonder what she was always thinking. For seven years, she was so so embedded under my skin that I um, I started writing notes down and wondering why seven years before when I had shot the pilot, why, which for those, I mean, most people understand the pilot is the very first episode, why that one scene in the hallway hit me so hard. Hey, you all right? And what it was to me um, that I hadn't dug deep enough to find out why I still, when I would see that scene or think of that scene, tear up. And I just started writing about it because I wanted to shed her from me. I wanted to start exploring who I was and not just this person running in circles trying to make everything work. Um, And the book really, I mean, if I'm going to, I have to be very honest, the book started out to be a handbook um, on set etiquette. Originally, yeah. (laughs) So Michael J. Fox and I used to sit on set and we would talk about how all these incredible actors we shot in New York and we would get the most incredible actors right out of Juilliard and Yale and all these beautiful, beautiful actors, artists. But none of them really understood set etiquette, that you might have to wait 13 hours before your close-up, that it's not always um, about you. It's actually about the crew. And without the crew, we are nothing. And so he and I used to joke about wanting to write a book about set etiquette. And while I was lying there in bed, once I wasn't in pain from the chicken pox and I just looked crazy and couldn't um, show my face outside, um, I started jotting down notes um, that turned into chapters. And in between the handbook part of it was sort of my childhood story. And I finished nine chapters and I got better and I submitted them to my agent. And she politely wrote back, handbooks for acting don't really sell. However, in between, you have a really interesting story. I want that story. Can you write me that story? And um, that was sort of the beginning of it. And then I I started to unravel everything. And and now we have a book. (laughs) It was so um, moving in the prologue about that scene that you talk about. And do you think you were, I mean, it sounds to me that you never really had time. You became so consumed uh, with the characters you were playing most recently before you wrote the book, Alicia Florrick. And it seems like you didn't have a minute to be introspective at all. And it just, it was something perhaps you were even avoiding. You're you're absolutely right. I mean, um, I, I think, so there was a confluence of things, which was, I was a new mommy and a new wife. I mean, Karen was born two months after we got married. Um, and he was 13 months old when I started The Good Wife. So it was more about trying to be a mother. This was a new title for me. A wife, another new title for me. And the lead of a very... The show was so, it was wonderful, but it was so demanding in terms of learning dialogue and always being there. And and also when you're number one on a call sheet, you want to take, well, my nature is to take care of everybody who's there. So between the baby, the husband, the show, the learning the lines, the character, I never really thought of about me. And the other side of it, and this isn't a sob story, it's just the truth, which is, 
because it was a hit, there was a lot of publicity. So any spare time I had, I was running off to do photo shoots, which is so great um, that I would just ignore my own exhaustion, ignore my own needs. And I remember being, it was Vanity Fair did a cover of the women of television and it was um, four of us on the cover. And I had shot all night and then had two hours sleep and ran to this photo shoot uh, in Chelsea in New York City. Cover of Vanity Fair, I should only be excited. And I remember running to the bathroom and sobbing. I was just so tired. And I was um, texting my girlfriend, Nancy, who's in the book a lot, because she was always the voice of reason for me, and saying, I should be on cloud nine, and all I want to do is hide under a rock. I'm so tired. And I realized, like, it just wasn't, it just kept going um, for seven years, and I never had a minute to take stock in myself. And so I think the end of it, um, and, and by no means was I sad during it. I just wasn't conscious enough about myself. And clearly your immune system went kaput and that's why you got chicken pox and were so exhausted you could barely move. I think your, your body was just giving out. So you regained your strength. You got over the chicken pox. Hopefully yes. you didn't scratch them and get scars like I did when I was five years old. But you know, so you got you got strong enough. And so how tell me a little bit about the writing process, Juliana. Did you get up in the morning? How disciplined were you? How did you kind of uh, retrieve some of these memories from your childhood, which we're going to talk about in a moment? But, you know, you, you write about when you were four, five years old, even younger, I think, maybe even three. And I'm just curious how you were able to to, as I said, retrieve those memories? Well, a lot of it had, well, first of all, um, I kept a, a journal since I was nine and I have them all. So that was very helpful. Of course, I couldn't write when I was three, four, and five, but um, I had journals. And I also, because my um, circumstance where I, um, I, I didn't live with my father, so I had written him letters and he had saved every single letter I ever wrote to him. Um, and I, so I had certain things that were actually, I, I could read and remember from that, but also, um, what you discover when you have a, a traumatic change in your life, that's what you remember. I remember certain smells of airplanes I got on when I was seven. I remember distinct, um, you know, uh, pictures, images of things when I was three in Paris. And I think because I, I never stayed stationary, everything seemed to be an event. So those events, I don't remember what I ate yesterday, but I can remember clearly the licorice I had in my hand in, a, in the Tuileries in Paris when I was three. Um, and it's because everything is new and different. So you remember that and you remember anxiety and you remember it wasn't it wasn't trauma, but it was drama. I was going to say maybe borderline trauma because maybe. Your, <laughs> your childhood was so you you describe. I know your your childhood is complicated and your parents is complicated. I would describe it. Your childhood is nomadic, peripatetic and unconventional. I think I remember even 
talking to you about that a, a few years ago. And, and so for people who haven't read the book yet, um, and I know some have and some haven't, but but give us a quick description if you can. I don't know how you can do it quickly because so much of the book is very vivid uh, memories of two very different lives that you led when your parents got divorced. But can you just spend a little bit of time talking about what that was like? Yeah, so I, you know, um, because it happened so young, I was a year old when my parents separated um, and their their marriage was pretty much over when I was born. Um, I think they tried for a year, but right when I was a year old, my father moved to Paris. And then my mother took me when I was two with my two sisters also to Paris after a year apart. Um, so we lived on the left bank, my father lived on the right bank. Two years after that, my father moved to London. My mother took me and my sisters to Sussex, which is 30 miles south of London, um, where she went to school. And then after five years in Europe, we moved back to New York where I, I actually felt like I finally had um, some sort of normalcy because we lived in the house I had gone to straight from the hospital when I was um, a baby in Spring Valley, New York. And my father lived in Manhattan and I would see him on weekends and I had a school and, and, and I got to know people and I felt like I finally belonged somewhere. And five years into that, when I was 11, I had just turned 11, my mother decided to move us to Nuremberg, Germany, um, which didn't really work out for her there. Um, so just the day before we were supposed to move to Nuremberg, she changed and called my father and said, send the kids back to England. So th it was a lot of back and forth. So we went to England and then came back to the States. And then finally, when I was in, in the States, my father a year later moved to England. So I was traversing the Atlantic Ocean pretty much since I was a baby and never quite understood the difference. Um, my, when I was with my father, I always felt like we had money. And when I was with my mother, I always felt like we were broke. Um, there was a, it's not in the book now, it's gone through so many iterations, but there, there was a chapter in the book where I talk about that. I remember walking in when I was 11 into this lopsided apartment, um, one bedroom apartment that my mother had found us to live in. And she was wringing out, um, paper towels and hanging them to dry. And I burst into tears and said, we, we can't be this poor. Are we this poor? Because when I was with my father in New York, we were going to see Annie on Broadway and eating at Tavern on the Green in the Russian Tea Room. I, I just didn't understand how we could be so destitute with my mother and live this incredible life with my father, even though I only saw my father twice a year. So. It was the going back and forth and the constant up and down and surfing this very strange landscape that didn't quite connect in the middle for me. So I was always trying to connect everything and make sense of everything. Um, and I think in the title of the book, um, Sunshine Girl was, was the nickname my mother gave me when I was little because she, she said I was always a ray of sunshine when I walked in a room. I was... I made people happy. I smiled. I never cried as a baby. I was easy. And I, and I wore that like a badge of honor because I realized I, I needed to lighten up situations that felt very heavy and beyond my grasp. Um, and, I, and while writing the book, um, I talk about how that actually crippled me as an adult 
because when you grow up with a name like Sunshine Girl, how are you ever going to say, no, I don't like that. No, that doesn't work for me. When you get older or this doesn't feel good, you just sort of learn to grin and bear it and pray that everyone else is happy. Coming up, how Juliana was able to write so honestly about her pretty complicated mother and what her mom's reaction was. That's right after this. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Both my parents were anthroposophists, which really just means the knowledge of man. And it's a philosophy that um, Rudolf Steiner... Um, developed uh, when he started his first school in Stuttgart, Germany. Um, and this was in World War I when he realized children were not being educated and he turned a tobacco factory into a school to help the children. And he was quite an interesting man, very esoteric. And your dad was a philosophy major at Dartmouth. So maybe, and that's one of the reasons he gravitated to him. And, and your mom did too. Absolutely. Well, I think my so my father introduced my mother to anthroposophy. My father was a philosophy major at Dartmouth. And um, really, that's all he ever wanted to do was just read philosophy books, write a few papers. He wrote a beautiful paper comparing Viktor Frankl and Rudolf Steiner that actually and, and it was the one paper where I thought, oh, he my father was an anthroposophist for the people. In other words, he tried to really translate Steiner's works, whereas my mother just sort of floated around in the ideology of it. And that really was a big backdrop for me as a child growing up, because I grew up around a lot of her searching to find a true meaning for herself in this world. And that didn't necessarily always include the best interests for her children. That's yes, definitely. Although I want to talk about that in a moment, but you know, it was interesting. Your dad became sort of a madman and, and was a coffee 
copywriter, very, very successful in advertising. And just a little known fact that maybe we can include in the new updated version of Trivial Pursuit is he <laughs> wrote plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. He wrote that jingle. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. Those speedy bubbles relieve your upset stomach and headache fast. That's right. It was actually, Katie, it was a Jeopardy question once. It was? <laughs> it was. <laughs> That's so funny. But yeah. your mom, you're right. I think, you know, and I actually had a lot of sympathy for your mom reading the book because of her era. And, you know, I think I've been thinking a lot about, you know, in the process of writing my own memoir and just generationally how things have changed for women and your mom was born in a period of time and was even different for my oldest sister, who was 10 years older than I. She just didn't really have an outlet or very many options. And you could kind of understand why she was always searching for herself, her true self, her purpose. And um, that, I think, is very much kind of a theme of the book, at least when it comes to your your mom, who then changed her name, she was Janice, and then she became Francesca. She was really searching, Julianne, right? She was, and also it was the 70s, you know? It was um, hippie. She was a hippie, and self-searching was in, you know? It was, it was the time. It wasn't so strange to bring your kids to a commune-like camp in the middle of Canada. I, I had a chapter about that, but that's not in the book, but that did happen, um, and just say, you know, figure it out, honey, I'm going to go meditate, you know, even though I was six, like that was kind of normal then. And it's sort of also why the cover of the book, I wanted to feel like a seventies poster. Oh, that's true. With the writing and the yeah. kind of the sunshine and very, it's kind of poppy, isn't it? Yeah. And it, and it, it was a, you know, um, I write about my mother very honestly, but also with tremendous love in my heart because um, because I love her and because in as hard as it was growing up, I'm so grateful as an adult, my mom, my mother's 86 now and she's still searching and she understood my need to write this book and she gave me her blessing to write it and said, I own my stuff, honey, feel free. I don't know how many people of her generation would be able to do that without the, the self-searching quality uh, of their of their being because um, it's hard to admit that you put your kids through a lot right um, but I, I want to just preface it by saying I was always loved I was maybe not chaperoned enough and maybe jostled around too much um, and not maybe thought of in uh, as the pri the first priority but there was only love and um, tremendous respect for who I was as a human being. Um, and, and so that was also a little tricky. It's a little tricky to navigate as a kid because then you're like, but you're putting me in this terrible situation. <laughs> How am I supposed to handle that? So that's what I try to write about in the book. And then to be able to say as an adult, I can change that narrative. I don't have to carry the anger all the time. I can now change that. And I did. I feel very grateful that I was able to confront both my parents at different times in my life and say, I, I know you love me and I love you, but I need, I need acknowledgement that what you did wasn't 
okay, I, I need an apology. <laughs> and did you and I it? got that. Yeah. Because your dad, I know, died in 2014. Uh, but you have talked to your mom since. And she's very proud of the book, despite the fact that you are pretty open about, about her warts and all. And I did feel that she loved you deeply throughout it, but that she was just kind of self-centered. Right. And, uh, you know, but anyway, I, I thought that I was going to ask you to read a passage. I know a lot of people want to hear more about your roles on ER. I'm getting questions from the audience about that. But I love the passage on 24, which page 24, which made me understand how your childhood experiences informed you and actually made you choose acting as a profession. Yeah, sure. I'll, I have it right here. Um, when I dig deep to try to understand why acting became my profession, even though I had much bigger plans for myself when, as a teenager, I was plotting out my adult life, I see now that nothing else would have made sense. What else could I do? I was always trying to be another person as a child, whether it was changing my accent, speaking in a different language, living the high life or just getting by, I was constantly changing who I was or trying to become someone I thought I was supposed to be. I wanted to fit into whatever situation was thrown at me. I became very good at determining which direction I needed to follow, depending on where I was or who I was with. Which I think really shows how your need to morph into different surroundings. You'd get an English accent, you'd lose your English accent, you'd move back to London, you'd have to get an English accent again, always desperately trying to fit in. And it must have, you know, as you've talked about, you know, already, trying to square these two very different worlds and often very different cultures, um, which very difficult for, uh, especially I would think for a prepubescent, you know, adolescent girl who's probably full of angst and, um, you know, identity issues already. So you had this overlay of these two different worlds. And I wonder if you would have become an actor had it not been for this kind of strange childhood you experienced. I, I'm wondering, do you think you would have been? I, I don't. I mean, I, I always assumed I would follow in my grandmother Henrietta's footsteps and be a lawyer, to be honest with you. That was sort of what I thought was a noble profession. Um, and I, 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 I just, I, I couldn't have done it. I, I wasn't good at reading the fine print. I don't think I would have um, been able to. I was studying character and, and body behavior. I remember distinctly at the age of six, and I talk about it in a chapter called Jesus in the Van, where we were living in a VW camper and my mother and her boyfriend who, we called Jesus Christ behind his back because that's what he looked like. Um, they picked up two hitchhikers somewhere along the coast of Spain. And um, I just remember seeing this, the woman had a twitch and I was sitting in the, my, my place in the van was the very back and just watching her neck. And I remember distinctly thinking, can I mimic that? Can I do that? And just being very aware of, of, um, people and what they wear and body uh, and how you walk and how you talk. Um, so it was like, it was, a, it was, it was like going to drama school really without me knowing it, you know? 
Yeah, I remember that and, and how you made that that Volkswagen van your little home as you guys went on the road. <laughs> Very different childhood than mine, that's for sure. <laughs> We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, how Nurse Hathaway almost never was. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Let's talk about sort of when you really burst on the scene. I remember it so well when you were Nurse Hathaway on ER. And, you know, just tell us a little bit about what that was like, getting that role and being part of that really true phenomenon. You know, the first year, I don't think any of us really could grasp the enormity of the show because we were working all the time. A first year of any series, especially a drama series, you're work, it, it isn't an oiled, well-oiled machine yet. Um, and it's a lot of learning curves. So we were at work sometimes 18 hours a day and living literally at home to the studio and back. There was no sort of outside understanding, even though two months into that show, we were on the cover of Newsweek. It was such a huge phenomenon. That's in the insert, by the way, that cover. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So so in the beginning, I didn't really I couldn't grasp it. Um, And I also think I probably I went from zero to 100 in such a short amount of time to go from being a struggling actress to being all over the world uh, on a show everyone's talking about is I still have a hard time believing it, even though I know it happened and I know I was a part of it. I'm still in awe that I was a part of it. Um, It was an amazing time and it was an amazing group of people to be with. And 
you know, I felt like an, I was a real newbie. So I, I, I learned from the best and I watched and I listened and I learned. And um, I am so grateful for the discipline of that show because uh, it taught me how to really work hard and and not ever complain again. Because once you've done a medical show like ER, everything else is a piece of cake. <laughs> really? And I and and it was such an incredible ensemble cast. And I know that that George Clooney uh, called you after you had shot the pilot to tell you that you got the the job right. I mean, is that well, where he called, that? So in the pilot of the show, I died. Um, and I was only hired for the pilot and then I died. My character comes in OD'd on a gurney. And so I flew back to New York and um, said goodbye to everyone. And um, I had had such a great time with them all. And then I uh, was looking for another job and I was offered another job. And that same day, George left me a message and said, I don't know if you're thinking of taking another job, but I wouldn't if I were you because I think they're gonna keep you on and they're going to offer you a series regular role. And that was a that was a hard gamble for me because I didn't know if it was true, you know, is was it going to happen? I, I needed and Tom Fontana, who is a, a writer and a dear friend of mine, um, he had offered me the job on Homicide Life on the Street. And I called him and he and I said, I don't know what to do. And he said, take the gamble. I'll always have a job here for you. And that George and Tom changed. They've changed my life. And, and you do stay in touch with the whole ER crew, Anthony Edwards and all of them. I, I today literally just got off the phone two minutes before I came in here with Eric LaSalle. Wow. Um, and yeah, it, it's a really um, and Tony's daughter, um, I, I think she just graduated, but um, goes to the same school my son goes to in New York City. So I'd, I'd see Tony in the hallway of my son's school. I mean, it's just a, it's been, it's, it's a gift that keeps on giving. And George and I have always, always um, stayed in touch. You, you know, we, we, I don't know what it was about our relationship on that show, but there was something, I think that we both had a way of working together that just, um, I don't even think we realized it, you know, every now and then we'll write to each other. Remember when we did that scene? Um, it just was a real that happens, you know, I, I'm lucky. I feel like I got it with Josh Charles to it. So for me, it happens twice in a lifetime, you know, when two characters, you can finish each other's sentences. I mean, that I've just been so, so lucky with my leading men, I have to say. You know, George and I have that same thing going, Juliana. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm actually feeling really quite jealous of you right now, but I'm John, sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. My husband is here uh, rolling his eyes. And he's awesome. Are you right there, John? <laughs> yeah, he, he's listening to this whole thing. Uh, <sighs> so anyway, but um, would you guys ever do a reunion show at all? Or I thought would be so fun, but maybe but not. What would we do? I mean, we, we just did this reunion that um, on, you know, for to raise money for the Waterkeepers Alliance. But um, and someone asked that. Well, it was one of the questions. And I mean, I think we all feel the same way, which is light. You can't catch lightning in a bottle twice. That show was on for 15 years and um, I got to be a part of the first six. I, I just don't know how you would reboot something that was that good. And we're all so much older now. And, 
you know, I feel like leave well enough alone and find something else that's great, you know? Yeah, I think you're probably right. You, you, speaking of the end of your run on ER, you write about after six years, you decided that you were going to turn down a $27 million two-year contract. And people thought you were insane. And you write about being at the gym, I believe, and turning on The View. Now I'm kind of mad at Barbara Walters and Joy Behar because they weren't being very nice about your decision. And they were talking some serious smack about you. And it must have been like an out-of-body experience. And you were really, really upset about it. So why don't you tell us why you you wanted to turn down uh, that that big chunk of change, Missy, and why, you know, and, and how you dealt with some of the backlash you got. Oh, I, you know, I feel like because I turned down that amount of money, it's, it's definitely defined me to a certain point in this business. She's the girl that turned down that kind of money. Sorry, there's sirens. I hope no one's hearing it. Um, and uh, I write about it because I want to just let people hear my side of the story which um, was it wasn't a light decision. I was very methodical about um, my decision. I asked everyone I respected what they would do. Um, every single person said, take the money. You'll never have to work again. No one gets offered this kind of money, especially a woman. This was quite a while ago. What year was this? So this was 2000. Yeah. Yeah. So this is 21 years ago, right? Maybe 20. Yeah. So whatever. 21 years ago. So, um, but, but before all of the money came into the picture, um, I had work secured for a year. So I was going to do my six years on ER happily. I had signed, I had signed for five and then I happily signed on for another one. And then I was going to be done and move back to New York where my, my family was back East. I'm an, I'm an East coaster. I loved LA, but it, it, it's just not my jam. I, I need a season to move forward. I, I need people around me. I felt a little isolated out there in a car all the time. Um, and I had been privileged to have been given a play by John Robin Bates, who I was a huge admirer of. He had written a part for me in a new play that I was gonna do at Lincoln Center with Jason Robards. I'm, who gets that dangled in front of them? Uh, when you're 31, 32 years old. And um, so I had that I was going to, and then I was going to go off and do my dream job, which was a four-part miniseries for TNT called The Mists of Avalon. I grew up reading all the um, Arthur legends, you know, King Arthur and the round, the and the Holy Grail and the Round Table and the Knights of the Round Table. And that was, I was going to get to ride horses. I was a horseback rider as a kid and quite a serious one. And here they were, they were paying me a lot of money to do it. And on top of everything, I was going to get to use my English accent, ride my horses. I mean, it was, to me, I had everything. It, I couldn't believe my life. Like, that was incredible. And then the money came in, right? Well, we'd love you to stay for two more years. We'll pay you $27 million. Um, so I had to dig deep, and I did. And, um, and ultimately, I knew, and I write about this sort of divine intervention moment for me in the book um, on that, on top of my father giving me really great advice, which was when is enough enough? I know a lot of unhappy rich people, honey. What if you got hit by a bus tomorrow? 
you said, yes, you'll take the money and you're living this life and you get hit by a bus before the two years is up and you're lying there on the street as you're dying and you say, did I live my truest life? Did, was I true to myself or was I just waiting to get rich and not living in the moment? And that rang so true to me and who I am um, that I opted to say thank you so much, but I'm going to not stay. Um, and then when the backlash happened, um, I think for me, when I saw the view as I was on the treadmill, I literally stopped and my heart started pounding because the way these women were speaking about me was as if, just to be clear, I was going off to do a play for $235 a week off Broadway at Lincoln Center. Like that was not, um, you know, I remember Barbara Walters say, well, she, she said, she's no spring chicken. Who does she think she is? And then Joy Behar getting in there and saying, well, she'll never work again. She, I'm going to be waving to her on my way out the door because she's going to be my doorman. I mean, the way they spoke about me was so um, cruel and, uh, and untrue. Um, and so for all you fans that keep asking me, why don't I go on that show? Now, you know, um, <laughs> I've never been on the show, but, um, but the truth is I'd be happy to go on it now because I don't care anymore. Like I could talk about it now and it doesn't matter, but I ne I never went on the show because I felt they showed such disrespect because no one bothered to ask me. They just made assumptions. And when I felt horrible, I called my father and I said, dad, everyone's laughing at me and making jokes and I just want to disappear. I, this is horrible. And he said, well, honey, you turned down the American dream. So what they're really upset about is they know that that wouldn't have been their choice. And it makes them angry that that is your choice. Really, it's about them. It's not about you. Who doesn't take that money? How could she possibly be happy if she doesn't have that kind of money or whatever it was? <laughs> And I realized, I was like, right, this isn't really about me at all. This is about their reaction to a choice I made. And, uh, and you know, it wasn't easy at first, but in time, I, I really stopped caring what anyone thought. It's my life. And, um, and I've had some amazing things come out of it because I... Yeah, I'll say. Yeah. I want to talk to you about The Good Wife, which... As you know, my husband, John, uh, consumed voraciously uh, a couple <laughs> of years ago. He was like, I'm not watching this show. And then he like couldn't stop watching the show. And a he, lot of men felt that way about the show, I think, because of what because it was called The Good Wife. I think they thought it was going to be too girly or something. But most men who watched it, they all come up to me on the street. They go, you know, I never watched it. And then I started watching it and I love it. So, yeah, he's your number one fan. But. I mean, you know, you're so fortunate to have, you know, you know, I mean, there are a lot of fine actors out there who don't have these incredible opportunities. I mean, not that you haven't earned every bit of it. I'm not suggesting that, but wow, to be on a show like The, the Good Wife, which um, clearly you were consumed by Alicia's character and you gave it your all, but what was it about that show that made it really work in, in a similar way that ER did, I think? Was it the ensemble? Was it the 
topicality, the Zelda Switzer, Spitzer, sorry, not Switzer, Spitzer. I dated a boy in college named Switzer, (laughs) not Switzer, Spitzer. And he was from the licorice company. But anyway, um, (laughs) Zelda Spitzer. So it was very weirdly timely. But when you look back at that whole experience, what was the, the key to the success of that show? So I think what 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 everyone has to remember is um, when you sign on to do a show, you're only given the only thing that's written is the pilot is that first episode. And that first episode, I had I was a little obsessed with Silda Spitzer and Elliot Spitzer. I watched that press conference where you see her standing behind him. And I remember screaming at the television like, why are you there? Don't leave, walk away. I didn't understand why she was there. And she looked like she wanted a sinkhole to happen, you know, like she just wanted something to take her away. Um, And what I found so fascinating in the pilot, when I was reading the pilot, what really got me was what happens after that press conference, when they go into the green room, what happens? And so there's this pilot and I'm reading it. And I was like, oh my God, I want to play that woman. I need to know who she is because like Silda Spit, you know, my, my Alicia Florick graduated top in her class at Georgetown law school, higher than, than uh, Peter Florick, Chris Noth's character, higher than Josh Charles's character, Will Gardner. She was number one. Silda Spitzer, such a smart woman. Who are these women? I got, I was so excited to play her. Then, of course, you make the pilot and you don't know what the show's going to be because you don't know if it's picked up or not. So nothing's written. And then they say it's a go. And then the first script comes in after the pilot. And it's where I, 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 I do think um, I am truly one of the luckiest people on the planet because that that this script fell into my lap. Robert and Michelle King. um wrote such a complex, interesting character. And yes, it's about the cast. It's about the writing. I mean, ultimately, the first thing it's about is the writing, really. Um, But then, as Robert and Michelle said to me, so many times in dailies, they would watch my character and I would wait for a minute before I answered because I always felt like Alicia really balanced things out in her head and thought things through. I noticed my husband, who calls himself a recovering lawyer, he always looks at two sides of each argument before he has an answer. And I'm, I'm an actress, I'm choleric. I'm like, I'm emotional, everything. I, I answer like, you know, way too fast, everything. And I loved the idea of being more, let me wait, let me weigh out two sides. And they would then start writing to what I was doing. That's the luxury of television. You, it's like a novel, you know, the writer gets to also see the the actor up there every day. And then they say, wait, she's really good at that. Wait, I'm going to write to that strength. And, and that dance that you get to do with writers, there's just nothing. The ER was the same, you know, we just had great writers. So it's the writing first. And then hopefully you see what you can do with the actors in it. And I, I, I mean, I was blessed to do that show. <laughs> and also the character development, you know, the evolution of all the characters, I think, you know, absolutely. You, they kept growing and changing and surprising us. Yeah. And it's, you know, TV, um, TV is like reading a, a really good novel. 
You know, you get to turn each page. You get to live inside the characters. They stay with you week after week. It's very different than a movie, which is two hours of beginning, a middle, and an end. With TV, it's ongoing. So it's sort of this just guilty pleasure all the time. And I couldn't wait to read each script. Not all television shows are like that, you know? So... Um, listen, we're almost out of time, but I was just going to close by a question that someone asked, which was in writing this book, what did you what did you learn about yourself in the process? You know, what did you come away recognizing or realizing that perhaps you hadn't before? Uh, I think the main thing that I that that hit me the most was while I was writing about my plates spinning in the seven years I was working, um, I realized and learned about myself that if I do not take time for myself and let go of trying to be the perfect wife, the perfect mother, the perfect friend or daughter or sister. Or even the perfect actor. Or even the perfect actor. I will be no good to anyone, especially myself. And that nobody wants to hang out with a martyr. It's so boring and so exhausting. And I realized as I was writing it, I was like, you better live by these words, girl. You better, you better. It's, it's funny because in the pandemic, people were asking, what, what did you do to find alone time? Because, you know, when you're locked down with a, a kid and a husband and anyway, and, I, and I, I'm finding out that everyone did this. I ran to the bathroom and shut the door because no one will bother you in the bathroom. So I. I would sit on the floor and maybe return some emails or just breathe or just read something so the newspaper because no one can bother you in the bathroom. And I realized like I will always find time to to run to the bathroom and shut the door and and be on my own. Um, I need to be alone. And that's what I loved about the process of writing was that every day I would be able to come into my office and no matter what, for two hours, make myself right every day if I if I could. And some days were great, and some days I had nothing to say. But um, I I did love the alone time of that. Well, I know that that people can't wait to see sort of what you do next. And as I said, you've got some people who are serious fans, including me. And I I wish you all the best with the book. It's so exciting. And it's such an accomplishment. So I hope you feel proud of yourself for finger to keyboard and, and really telling your story. And you did such a beautiful job. So congratulations. Thank you so, 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 so much. And thank you for doing this and being so supportive. It means the world to me. And by the way, you can find Sunshine Girl by Juliana Margulies wherever you buy your books. Speaking of book tours, hello, my memoir, Going There, is out October 26th, and I'll be taking the show on the road. To find out when and where I'm headed and to get your tickets, check out Ticketmaster.com slash going there, and hopefully I'll see you there. Next week on Next Question. I have for five seconds the control of the narrative about me. Sharon Stone exposes Sharon Stone. I get to actually tell you something that's true about me. The Oscar-nominated actress sharing her story on her own terms. That's next Thursday on Next Question. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. 
The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements, Adriana Fazio, and Emily Pinto. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecurric.com. You can also find me at katiecurric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.